Hey there. Welcome to The Lounge. I'm your host, Keith Farley, bringing you cornbread stuffing wishes and cranberry dreams. Our lounge today is all about giving thanks. Double Batch Daddy bring us a new tune about coming through with gratitude. I'll talk with Dan Boole, co-creator of 65, a line of guitar amplifiers, about cultivating a grateful mindset even in the face of loss. I found a sweet story by O. Henry that celebrates selfless giving and heavy eating in equal measure, and later we'll explore the theme of gratitude as a practice that can be cultivated. So, here we are. The year is starting to wind down and it's time to give thanks before we settle into our long winter's nap with visions of sugar plums dancing in our heads. Sunrise in Los Angeles came at 6.23 this morning and it sets at 4.50 this afternoon. It's getting darker. It's getting colder. Time to move inside, light a fire, add a blanket to the bed, and get cozy, people. The big feast of Thanksgiving is right around the corner, that yearly ritual where we spend days preparing a meal that's over in 30 minutes. The first time I prepared a Thanksgiving meal, I made the rookie mistake of thinking everything should be made on Thanksgiving Day. By the time the meal was finally on the table, I was suitably exhausted. And a few minutes later, I was wondering why we work so hard for such a brief reward. It took a couple years to learn that preparation and delegation are the key to enjoying Thanksgiving Day with minimal stress and strain. Reducing stress and strain are the key components to a grateful heart, and as I sit here writing this piece, I'm acutely aware of the clock ticking down to my deadline. But instead of spending these hours worrying about running out of time, I'm instead going to take a couple of deep breaths, come back to this present moment, and spend some time being grateful for everyone who's contributed to making Live from the Lounge show up on your podcast feed each month. Let's start with the musicians. Double Batch Daddy have massively risen to the challenge of providing an original song for the Lounge each month this year. The twins, Tim and Tom Zender, are longtime friends, deep and caring individuals, goofy dudes, excellent husbands and fathers, and as you well know, fantastically talented singers and songwriters. I'm grateful for all of the ways they enrich my life, spiritually, professionally, and personally. Then there's John Ballinger, who got so busy teaching, playing, composing, and performing music that he had to pull back a little this year. But he was still willing and eager to contribute every time we asked him, and he generously allowed us to continue to share the dozens of pieces he's composed, arranged, and performed for us in the past. John is a supremely dedicated man with a commitment to excellence that you can hear in his music and feel in his presence. We wish him and Uma all the love and peace that they are due. Matt and Carol Olmos have steadily and consistently delivered thoughtful, hysterical, and often scathing radio shows. I simply adore the way they think about our world, and I'm constantly inspired not only by their smart, insightful comedy, but also by their deep, 
commitment to caring for our planet and the animals that occupy it. We wish them all the best as they move into a new home in Ventura County. I've known Charles Dayton longer than anyone who's worked on this podcast. I was the best man at his wedding. I had a short speech prepared to toast him and his wife, Terry, when the time came. Between the wedding and the reception, however, Charles informed me that he had added a musical cue to play under my toast, a musical cue that was six minutes long. The resulting extended riff on the nature of love and the look of stunned confusion on the gathered guests continues to tickle us almost 30 years later. I'm grateful to Charles for joining us to lend his smart and silly mind to our lounge by providing the soundscape for the big question each month. Charles is as faithful a friend and collaborator as I have ever known. I look forward to all the love and laughter that our future holds. Ruby Farley is my kid, so forgive me if I put on my proud papa hat and gush a bit. Ruby's come through a lot. She was born with the worst teeth. Her baby teeth required caps, and her adult teeth required severe orthodontia. She drew a bum appendix, a faulty gallbladder, and terrible tonsils. But in the past 12 months... I've been grateful to watch a gorgeous butterfly emerge from the COVID chrysalis of 2020 and 21. Listening to her sing Joni Mitchell and Paul Williams from the living room. Watching her thrive as she hones her skill as an actor. And being able to direct her once or twice without feeling like a father pushing his kid, but more as two peers who respect and appreciate each other. These have all been major highlights of the last 12 months for me. I feel like the fuse is lit. Time just to get out of the way and watch the magic light up the sky. And then there's Anne Kloss Farley, my intrepid producer and partner in all things. I don't know anyone who works as hard as she does, who cares as much as she cares, who loves as fiercely, deeply, and passionately as she loves. I'm constantly astounded, amazed, and impressed by her. And I sometimes wonder how I got so lucky to have a partner like her. Mostly, though, I just thank my lucky stars that she's in my life. And finally, thanks to you, dear listener, for sharing this journey with us. A tree that falls in the forest does not make a sound unless there's someone there to hear it. That's the nature of things, and I'm all about the nature of things. As we circle our sun together, I look forward to sharing the balance of light and darkness with you so we can continue to groove with the rhythms of the seasons together. After all we've come through, it's all the more true. I wouldn't be here without you. With every new, new normal, it's funny and formidable. The more and more I love you. After all we've come through, it's all the
not so easy Especially when you laugh at yourself And help me laugh at myself You do what you do and let me do what I do Stumbling into a new move, yeah Climbing on me and you groove In a world so mad with toxic ways I'm so glad I fit with you Trying on peace with every one of our days After all we've come through It's all the more true I wouldn't be In 1901, Theodore Roosevelt, in his Thanksgiving proclamation, wrote, Let us remember that, as much has been given us, much will be expected from us, and that true homage comes from the heart as well as from the lips, and shows itself in deeds. The New York native O. Henry had some fun playing with this notion in this story, written nine years later. Two Thanksgiving Day Gentlemen by O. Henry
There is one day that is ours. There is one day when all we Americans who are not self-made go back to the old home to eat celeritous biscuits and marvel how much nearer to the porch the old pump looks than it used to. Bless the day. President Roosevelt gives it to us. We hear some talk of the Puritans, but don't just remember who they were. Bet we can lick them anyhow if they try to land again. Plymouth Rocks? Well, that sounds more familiar. Lots of us have had to come down to hens since the Turkey Trust got its work in. But somebody in Washington is leaking out advance information to them about these Thanksgiving proclamations. The big city east of the Cranberry Bogs has made Thanksgiving Day an institution. The last Thursday in November is the only day in the year on which it recognizes the part of America lying across the ferries. It is the one day that is purely American. Yes, a day of celebration, exclusively American. And now for the story, which is to prove to you that we have traditions on this side of the ocean that are becoming older at a much rapider rate than those of England are, thanks to our get-up and enterprise. Stuffy Pete took his seat on the third bench to the right as you enter Union Square from the east, at the walk opposite the fountain. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years he had taken his seat there promptly at one o'clock. For every time he had done so, things had happened to him. Charles Dickensy things that swelled his waistcoat above his heart and equally on the other side. But today... Stuffy Pete's appearance at the annual trysting place seemed to have been rather the result of habit than of the yearly hunger, which, as the philanthropists seem to think, afflicts the poor at such extended intervals. Certainly Pete was not hungry. He had just come from a feast that had left him of his powers barely those of respiration and locomotion. His eyes were like two pale gooseberries firmly embedded in a swollen and gravy-smeared mask of putty. His breath came in short wheezes. A senatorial roll of adipose tissue denied a fashionable set to his upturned coat collar. Buttons that had been sewed upon his clothes by kind salvation fingers a week before flew like popcorn, strewing the earth around him. Ragged he was, with a split shirt front open to the wishbone. But the November breeze, carrying fine snowflakes, brought him only a grateful coolness. For Stuffy Pete was overcharged with the caloric produced by a super bountiful dinner, beginning with oysters and ending with plum pudding, and including, it seemed to him, all the roast turkey and baked potatoes and chicken salad and squash pie and ice cream in the world. Wherefore he sat, gorged, and gazed upon the world with after-dinner contempt. The meal had been an unexpected one. He was passing a red brick mansion near the beginning of Fifth Avenue, in which lived two old ladies of ancient family and a reverence for traditions. They even denied the existence of New York and believed that Thanksgiving Day was declared solely for Washington Square. 
One of their traditional habits was to station a servant at the postern gate with orders to admit the first hungry wayfarer that came along after the hour of noon had struck and banquet him to a finish. Stuffy Pete happened to pass by on his way to the park, and the seneschals gathered him in and upheld the custom of the castle. After Stuffy Pete had gazed straight before him for ten minutes, he was conscious of a desire for a more varied field of vision. With a tremendous effort, he moved his head slowly to the left, and then his eyes bulged out fearfully, and his breath ceased, and the rough-shot ends of his short legs wiggled and rustled on the gravel. For the old gentleman was coming across 4th Avenue toward his bench. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years the old gentleman had come there and found Stuffy Pete on his bench. That was a thing the old gentleman was trying to make a tradition of. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years he had found Stuffy there and had led him to a restaurant and watched him eat the big dinner. They do those things in England unconsciously, but this is a young country, and nine years is not so bad. The old gentleman was a staunch American patriot and considered himself a pioneer in American tradition. In order to become picturesque, we must keep on doing one thing for a long time without ever letting it get away from us. Something like collecting the weekly dimes in the industrial insurance or cleaning the streets. The old gentleman moved straight and stately toward the institution that he was rearing. Truly, the annual feeding of Stuffy Pete was nothing national in its character, such as the Magna Carta or jam for breakfast was in England, but it was a step. It was almost feudal. It showed, at least, that a custom was not impossible to New York. <clears throat> America. The old gentleman was thin and tall and sixty. He was dressed all in black and wore the old-fashioned kind of glasses that won't stay on your nose. His hair was whiter and thinner than it had been last year, and he seemed to make more use of his big, knobby cane with the crooked handle. As his established benefactor came up, Stuffy wheezed and shuddered like some woman's overfat pug when a street dog bristles up at him. He would have flown, but all the skill of Santos Dumont could not have separated him from his bench. Well had the myrmidons of the two old ladies done their work. Good morning, said the old gentleman. I am glad to perceive that the vicissitudes of another year have spared you to move in health about the beautiful world. For that blessing alone this day of thanksgiving is well proclaimed to each of us. If you will come with me, my man, I will provide you with a dinner that should make your physical being accord with the mental. That is what the old gentleman said every time. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years. The words themselves almost formed an institution. Nothing could be compared with them except the Declaration of Independence. Always before, they had been music in Stuffy's ears. But now, he looked up at the old gentleman's face with tearful agony in his own. 
The fine snow almost sizzled when it fell upon his perspiring brow. But the old gentleman shivered a little and turned his back to the wind. Stuffy had always wondered why the old gentleman spoke his speech rather sadly. He did not know that it was because he was wishing every time that he had a son to succeed him. A son who would come there after he was gone. A son who would stand proud and strong before the subsequent Stuffy and say, In memory of my father. Then it would be an institution. But the old gentleman had no relatives. He lived in rented rooms in one of the decayed old family brownstone mansions in one of the quiet streets east of the park. In the winter, he raised fuchsias in a little conservatory the size of a steamer trunk. In the spring, he walked in the Easter parade. In the summer, he lived at a farmhouse in the New Jersey hills and sat in a wicker armchair speaking of a butterfly, the Ornithoptera amphiricius, that he hoped to find some day. In the autumn, he fed Stuffy a dinner. These were the old gentleman's occupations. Stuffy Pete looked up at him for half a minute, stewing and helpless in his own self-pity. The old gentleman's eyes were bright with the giving pleasure. His face was getting more lined each year, but his little black necktie was in as jaunty a bow as ever, and the linen was beautiful and white, and his gray mustache was curled carefully at the ends. And then Stuffy made a noise that sounded like peas bubbling in a pot. Speech was intended. And as the old gentleman had heard the sounds nine times before, he rightly construed them into Stuffy's old formula of acceptance. Thank ye, sir. I'll go with ye, and very much obliged. I'm very hungry, sir. The coma of repletion had not prevented from entering Stuffy's mind the conviction that he was the basis of an institution. His Thanksgiving appetite was not his own. It belonged to all the sacred rites of established custom, if not by the actual statute of limitations to this kind old gentleman who had preempted it. True, America is free, but in order to establish tradition, someone must be a repetend, a repeating decimal. The heroes are not all heroes of steel and gold. See one here that wielded only weapons of iron, badly silvered, and tin. The old gentleman led his annual protege southward to the restaurant and to the table where the feast had always occurred. They were recognized. Here comes the old guy, said a waiter, that blows that same bum to a meal every Thanksgiving. The old gentleman sat across the table glowing like a smoked pearl at his cornerstone of future ancient tradition. The waiters heaped the table with holiday food, and Stuffy, with a sigh that was mistaken for hunger's expression, raised knife and fork and carved for himself a crown of imperishable bay. No more valiant hero ever fought his way through the ranks of an enemy. Turkey, chops, soups, vegetables, pies disappeared before him as fast as they could be served. Gorged nearly to the uttermost when he entered the restaurant, 
The smell of food had almost caused him to lose his honor as a gentleman. But he rallied like a true knight. He saw the look of benevolent happiness on the old gentleman's face. A happier look than even the fuchsias and the ornithoptera amphoresias had ever brought to it. And he had not the heart to see it wane. In an hour, Stuffy leaned back with a battle won. Thank ye kindly, sir. He puffed like a leaky steam pipe. Thank ye kindly for a hearty meal. Then he rose heavily with glazed eyes and started toward the kitchen. A waiter turned him about like a top and pointed him toward the door. The old gentleman carefully counted out a dollar and thirty cents in silver change, leaving three nickels for the waiter. They parted as they did each year at the door, the old gentleman going south, stuffy north. Around the first corner, Stuffy turned and stood for one minute. Then he seemed to puff out his rags as an owl puffs out its feathers and fell to the sidewalk like a sun-stricken horse. When the ambulance came, the young surgeon and the driver cursed softly at his weight. There was no smell of whiskey to justify a transfer to the patrol wagon, so Stuffy and his two dinners went to the hospital. There, they stretched him out on a bed and began to test him for strange diseases with the hope of getting a chance at some problem with the bare steel. And lo, an hour later, another ambulance brought the old gentleman, and they laid him on another bed and spoke of appendicitis, for he looked good for the bill. But pretty soon, one of the young doctors met one of the young nurses whose eyes he liked and stopped to chat with her about the cases. That nice old gentleman over there now? He said, You wouldn't think that was a case of almost starvation. Proud old family, I guess. Told me he hadn't eaten a thing for three days. Keith here. Hope you're enjoying our lounge this month. We're on a mission to get you where you want to go with humor and heart. It's the same great stories, songs, and conversations as always, with an emphasis on finding ways to help you achieve your goals by grooving with the rhythms of the season. If you get something valuable out of this podcast, we hope you'll take a moment to share a little something with us. Head to livefromtheloungepodcast.com, click the donate button, and help us keep this podcast coming to you season after season. Thanks for listening, and thanks in advance for your generosity. Unless you're a guitar aficionado, you may not know Dan Bull's name. But if you've seen Sheryl Crow, the Eagles, or the Steve Miller Band in concert, you've heard his amps. He named them 65s for the year he was born, and they're kind of a big deal. I invited Dan to the lounge to talk about the cycle of birth, growth, death, and new life he discovered in his business life, and how the practice of gratitude helped him through the rough spots. Well, Dan, it's good to have you here in the VO Lounge. Thank you, Keith. I'm thrilled to be here. I think the first time... That I remember, like, bonding with you yeah. was at the Colfax Kid Cella. 
Oh yeah, yeah. And I was you were working the fair, and so was I. I was emceeing. Yeah, and I had a whole bunch of musician jokes. You pulled me aside, like, "Hey, man, I'm really loving your, I'm loving your stuff, man." Right, I remember that. Yeah, and I was like, "Hey, I'm loving your stuff too, man. You're that great guitar player, dude." I knew we were kindred spirits at that at that point. What folks may not know is that you are a, um, you created a boutique amplifier that's kind of Mm -hmm. a big deal in the music industry. I'm just wondering what. How did that begin for you? What made you decide that, right. hey, listen, Vox and Mesa Boogie and Fender are all great, but I got something to offer this industry? Right. Well, it's a funny story because it was sort of an organic, like, accidental thing. It wasn't like, I've got a business plan. You know, it wasn't that at all. So <clears throat> I'm the kind of guy that when I like something, I have to tear it apart and figure out how it works. I've been that way when I was five years old and I got a toy dump truck. I took it apart and greased the axles and made them straight so it would roll farther. Like, I ha- oh, I've always been that kid, right? So I got a little Marshall amp when I was uh, summer between seventh and eighth grade. And I loved it. Oh, my God, it sounded so incredibly good. I was just learning how to play guitar. I've been playing guitar maybe a year at that point, year and a half. And so my dad blew all this money. He made me work and earn it and all this kind of stuff. I had the thing maybe six weeks, and he comes downstairs, and I've got the whole thing apart. <laughs> and and the first words out of his mouth was, I am not paying to put that thing back together. You're going to have to learn how to do it. So I put that thing back and forth maybe six or eight times before I got where it would even turn on. Mm. I totally ruined it. I went to the University of Missouri Library, and I got old books from the basement about RCA tube manuals and kind of just figured out how it worked and and then i had the luxury of one of the teachers at my school was an ex-air force guy and we were learning about computers and he goes well i used to work with tubes and i "I have a tube amp and i said can i bring it in and he goes yeah bring it in we'll have it'll be a class project so i got it working and from that point on i've just been infatuated with tube amps so fast forward i started playing music for a living uh when i was in my early 20s and I met this guy, I moved to Atlanta, and I was playing in a band. I met this guy named Peter Stroud, who is my business partner with 65, but you know him as being Sheryl Crow's guitar player since 1997. Right. Peter has the same neurosis that I have. So we end up both working in a music store in Atlanta, and people would trade in these old amps they didn't want. And we would take them and rip them apart and modify and burn ourselves and shock ourselves. And we learned how to make really cool, fun, oddball amps that were unique to us. Fast forward again, he gets a gig with Cheryl. And so he was playing with Cheryl, and by like 2002, she was at her peak. And her shows were getting up to three hours. And she was tired of yelling over, Peter had a 50-watt Marshalls. And she was like, you know, time out. Like, guys, I can't do this for three hours. So I had this little old Vox amp that was 12 watts, called an AC-15, from 1963. And Peter had a little old Marshall, the tiniest Marshall ever made. It was an 18-watt Marshall. Wow. And they're both really great little amps. And he was joking around saying, you know, between that amp and this amp, I could do my job. And Cheryl would be much happier with me, you know. (laughs) And uh, so I started looking at the schematics. And I realized, hey, you know, the power sections on these amps are almost identical. How about we just make an amp and it has two separate channels. One is my AC-15 and one is your Marshall. And we'll hop them up. We'll do all those tricks you and I did in your basement, you know, in the 80s and 90s. So we made this first amp called a London. And I used to live in London. And it was just sort of like, 
that's where I got exposed to all these great circuits. And uh, it was just a joke. <laughs> it was all just for fun. So we just went for it. And then we changed the circuits because he and I had all this experience Frankensteining amps together. Yep. And then we took it to rehearsal and Cheryl said, I love it. I want one too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that sort of threw yeah. open the doors mm-hmm. to the rock and roll yeah. world. And who else was, was using your amps at the time? Who else was So when we around? first got started, I was still working at a desk job. And I started getting calls. So it ended up that Peter used one, Cheryl used one, and the other guitar player in their band, Tim Smith, used one. And they started going and playing gigs. And I get a call at my desk. Hey, hello, Dan, it's Peter Frampton calling. And I'm like, yeah, 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 Peter Frampton. Hey, listen, I'm working, man. What, you know? Oh, bedtime, is it? You know, and I'm like, oh, shit, it's Peter Frampton. <laughs> I hang on a second. I ran out in the hallway by the water fountain. Peter, so great to hear from you. What can I do for you? He says, well, I watched Stroud, you know, play your amp. And he told me you'd make me one. I said, yeah, I'll make you one. It'll take a while. And he was so nice. And I said, we usually charge this much for the amp, but for you. And he goes, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll pay full price. You give a break to someone who needs a break. That was my first big customer. Literally two weeks later after that, hey, Dan, it's Joe Walsh calling, man. I just talked to Stroud. He said you'd make me one of them cool little amps. And Steve Miller called me there, you know, all these other people. And then so someone would see Frampton play with it and go, hey, I just saw Peter Frampton. He gave me your number. Like, stop giving my number out. I have a job, you know. (laughs) Like, I can't keep building amps. So then Peter Stroud and I went to... Summer Nam in Austin. And we just thought, let's just test the waters just to see, right? And we left there with 85 orders, not 85 amps, 85 orders. Many of those orders had six to eight amps on them. And Peter and I were just like, holy crap, dude, I guess we're in the amp business. And uh, we just started making amps. And then it just kept growing. Like we just, we didn't sell, we didn't have dealers right. for a couple of years. We were just selling to pros. So if you ever see any of our amps that have like the voltage selector on the back where you can play it all over the world with it, those were for touring guys. Explosive growth. Yeah, it was it was out of control. It was a runaway train. For years and years. Yeah, until the recession. And yeah. what happened then? You know, the end of 2008 is when things started. We're reading about Secretary Paulson throwing up into trash cans in the White House, you know, like stressed out. Is there going to be a dollar next year? Should we convert? And we were literally talking about, should we convert our whole business over to euros? And all the smart people that we talked to said, no, this, this will be over in a year. You know, they were wrong. But by 2010, the Bank of America, right over here on Laurel Canyon, the shootout bank, right? Yeah. And the guy said, yeah, we don't offer that product anymore. And I went, why? I'm the best customer ever. I run money through your bank. I have my credit cards here. I have a term loan here. I have a business line of credit. And my whole business runs out of this branch. And I've never missed a payment. Because no, no, it's not you. Just we don't offer those products anymore. Unless you want to borrow $5 million. <laughs> so I finally, I had a guy who was offering to do a license deal on my products. Mm. So by 2012, I shut down my factory. And we did a, I did a license deal for five years. Um, because I, it was either that or shut down. And honestly, I just did the license deal so all my guys would not lose their job. That sounded like that was a, a, a difficult time. Oh, yeah. From having a smooth sailing. Oh, yeah. Um, quite a contract. Just this crazy yeah. growth that was going on. Massive turn of fortune. To having the rug really ripped out from under you. Yeah. 
I went into hypertension really bad during that point, which is just where your body won't stop running adrenaline. You know, like yeah. when you're in finals week and you're you're awake all night, it's adrenaline, right? And so there's a certain point at which you drip adrenaline where your body goes, I guess we'll just stay this way. Mm. That's hypertension. And I remember driving into work one day and I go, I really feel bad. So I called my doctor's office and I said, look, I need to, can I just run in? Like, I don't feel right. And I went in there and they took my blood pressure and it was like 180 over 120. Oh, Lordy. So they laid me down on a table and gave me a shot and said, if we can't drop your blood pressure in 30 minutes, we have to take you to the emergency room. What that ultimately led to is me having a double bypass surgery, which you're keenly aware of because you're kind enough to come walk with me when I was recovering. So uh, it was all stress-induced. It wasn't like cholesterol, bad diet thing. I wasn't smoking cigarettes or anything like that. And uh, It was just stress. But nonetheless, I'm so thrilled to be here to tell that story. Well, I'm glad that you are because mm -hmm. I know you as an exceedingly positive, oh. warm, caring, loving human Thank being. Thank you. That's really generous. Who is also filled with a recognition for the gifts that you've been given. Totally. Yeah. I'm a very lucky guy. And when these things come along, these crazy turns of fortune, mm -hmm. how do you keep or did you learn from these experiences to be grateful yeah. for what you do have right. and for the things that are really important. How did you not end up a bitter, <laughs> nasty, yeah. old crank? Well, there's a lot of factors. That's a, that's a great question. So I think I've talked to you probably too much about like my influential grandparents. They're immigrants or children of immigrants, and they raised large families through the Depression. They had a backbone and a constitution that was amazing. And my one of my grandfathers was a banker during the Depression. And he made it work. He did really well. He got one of the first federal savings and loans, you know, charters in the middle of the country and everything. So he made it work. But he constantly talked to me about, um, you have a choice on how you're going to handle this stress. So when I had a house full of kids and no money in the bank, and I had to get up every day and I could walk around and say I'm a victim and the world's not fair and other people get lucky and blah, 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 blah. Or I can get up in the morning, shave my face put a smile on my face and go to work and just make it work. And if you put your mind to it long enough, you will figure out a way to make it work. You will look yourself in the mirror and like what you see. And you may end up beat up from it. And I ended up very beat up from it, but I made it work. I, you know, I, I saved all my employees. We saved our house. Um, we did all those things. And I never once woke up and said, I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this. Even though internally I was going, please, sweet baby Jesus, get me out of here. And so there's this sort of self-creation thing you do. Like, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be uh, grateful for everything that I have. And then after a while you start realizing, oh, wait a minute, I actually am grateful. You know my wife. I'm married way over my head. And I have great kids, as do you. And, you know, all that stuff. And I have friends like you. But I intentionally create an ecosystem around me of people that are uplifting. And I try to, in turn, be uplifting to other people. And, and so it creates this snowball of this gratitude and this happiness and this sort of can-do thing. Um, it's maybe psychosomatic. I don't care. It works. Do you have a memory? Do you have a, a thought, a notion of when you sort of woke up to the gratitude or that first thing well, that you were thankful for? You know, it started off as I'm going to intentionally force myself 
you know, to be happy. I'm going to fake it. You know, I'm going to force myself to reach for every bit of gratitude I could. And I remember I had memories that I stumbled upon in the dark recesses of my head that still comfort me today. Like taking a nap at my grandmother's house at three in the afternoon and the window is open and there's a breeze coming and the little silky curtains are blowing right next to me and I could hear my grandmother out in the hallway. You know, those sorts of things. And everybody has something like that in their life. If you can actually touch it, it will make you feel better. And there is a cycle, there's an energy of good out there and everything, and you can choose to be a part of it. You have to choose to be a part of it. It's not going to knock on your door. You have to decide, I'm going to be a part of this. However you look at it, existentially or spiritually or literally whatever, it's the same thing. It's all the same. And so now I'm grateful that I can tap into it at will. But it's an acquired skill. You know, I had to teach myself how to do it. It was either that or die. Anyway, I'm grateful for all that stuff. And, I, and now it's become a habit. Getting into the habit of gratitude might be as simple as remembering a nap you took when you were eight years old. Something that simple can be the touchstone that brings you a moment of peace when things appear to be falling apart all around you. I'm grateful to Dan for that image and for his story of the successes and challenges that can spring forth from following your passions throughout your life and the way gratitude can be the shining light that leads you out of darkness. Hold on to me as we go As we roll down this unfamiliar road Although this world is stringing us along Just know you're not alone Cause we're gonna make this place your
remember the sweaty summer afternoon I discovered my father's ukulele in a shack behind our house. The shack is gone now, emptied and torn down years ago. But once upon a time, it's where all the coolest stuff was stored. Old magazines and records, ancient board games, MRE kits with stale Paul Malls to secretly swipe and smoke. During the long summer months, I had often rummaged through the cubbies to see what kind of weird treasure I could uncover. And, being a space that literally no one else was interested in, it eventually became a great spot to stash some secret stuff of my own. I found the ukulele in a box with an instruction book and a collection of easy ukulele songs. I took it into the room where our piano lived to tune it to the G-C-A-E tuning, the My Dog Has Fleas tuning you may be familiar with. The songbook was filled with old-timey songs that I mostly didn't recognize, but Five Foot Two Eyes of Blue was in there, and I knew that one, so I started learning it. C chord. Easy. Just one finger on the third fret. E7. Yikes, give me a sec. Okay. Got the title anyway. Five foot two, eyes of blue. Then A7, another one finger wonder. Oh, what those five foot can do. F, got it. Has anybody G that's just like a D chord on guitar seen my gal that's the gist of it chorus wise let's see if I can go a little faster could she love could she coo could she could she could she coo has anybody seen my gal I learned babyface too That one got me a job as a singing telegram messenger, story for another time. And I heard a ukulele part in the song, It's All for the Best from Godspell. I learned that one with my pal Kurt, who played the piano. It was a really fun song because it is a duet and it has a patter section, which suits my singing style to a T. 
Some men are born to live at ease, doing what they please, richer than the bees are in honey. Never growing old, never feeling cold, pulling pots of gold from thin air. They are the best in every town, best at shaking down, best at making mountains of money. They can't take it with them, but what do they care? My dad's uke eventually broke. It was a pretty cheap model. I didn't pick up another one until 1998, when a director asked if I could learn a song for a play I was in. I got more serious about the uke in the early years of the 21st century. I joined a little uke club called the Jumping Flea Circus, learned a whole bunch of country songs, Bob Dylan songs, and we even started to play melody here and there. That led to looking up tablature, or tabs, of songs, which is essentially a notation device allowing you to learn to play solos on the uke. And lately, I play with a group called the Ukulele Orchestra of the Western Hemisphere. Despite the grand title, we're basically a community band of ukesters of varying skill levels who love to play and sing together almost as much as we love surprising audiences with our repertoire. Every once in a while... I get a call from a friend who just bought themselves a ukulele and wants to learn how to play it. I always start off by teaching them a song that only has one chord. If you put your finger on the first fret of the top string, you make a C7 chord. It sounds like this. One finger, one chord, one song. Now you know how to play The Beat Goes On. Just strum the strings with your thumb and sing. The beat goes on, the beat goes on. Now see if you can find another strumming pattern that feels good with the song. Try down, down, up, down, down, up, down, down, up. Sun keeps shining rhythm in my brain. la di da di dee then, maybe learn to add a catch and a couple more strums. It's only one chord, so you don't need to worry about your left hand at all. Just see if you can get the feel for the strumming part. It might feel a little weird at first to get your brain to do all these things at once, but if you stick with it for a few minutes, you'll find it comes easier. A doom, 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 doom. The beat goes on, but doom, 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 doom. The beat goes on, but doom, 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 doom. Now that you've got a knack for strumming, go learn the C chord, the F chord, and the G chord. Once you know those three, you can play a thousand songs. From kids' songs, The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. To the Beatles, Shake it up, baby, now shake it up, baby. Twist and shout, twist and shout. To Jimmy Buffett, Wasting away again in Margaritaville To Green Day Do you have the time to listen to me whine About everything and nothing all at once Add A minor And you just learned another thousand E7, A7, D7, and G7 And old-timey jazz standards start to come into view And so it grows All it takes is a little practice. The best players will tell you, if you touch the instrument every day, you'll retain your knowledge and feel for it much better than you will if you leave it sitting for a few days, weeks, or in my case, years at a time. 
It doesn't need to be a long session either. It's better to spend 10 minutes a day every day than it is to spend a whole hour once a week. Well, surely you can find 10 minutes a day for some music, can't you? If not, five will do. So will two. Just try to make it happen every day. And I'm positive you'll discover that once you sit down to play, 10 minutes can easily stretch to 15 or 30, especially once you start to get good at playing a few songs. You'll find that one leads to another, and pretty soon an hour has gone by without you even noticing it. But even if you only have time to hit one song and call it quits, playing every day is the absolute key to learning any instrument. But trust me, there will be days when you absolutely do not feel like touching that thing. How you deal with those days will be the key to your growth or regression. It's the same with giving thanks. If you want to learn gratitude, start small with something easy, like the air. It's always there. You can simply take a deep breath and be grateful that there's air always hanging around waiting for you to breathe it in. You might then notice the sun. How lucky we are to live on a planet under a sun that gives us light and warmth. And once you've got the hang of that, you might get more fancy with your gratitude. My wife sometimes brings me coffee in the mornings. Thank you for the coffee, honey. Can be broken down to gratitude for the kind gesture made by the person I love for taking the time to bring a cup of hot water strained through ground beans that grow from the earth, nourished by the rain and the sun, beans that were picked by human beings hundreds or thousands of miles away from here, sorted, roasted, packaged, and shipped by thousands of others in order to get to my local grocery store where I'm able to buy them with money I make from doing my job, which I love. Usually, though, it's just, thanks for the coffee, honey. Thank you is the C7 chord of gratitude. And you could make a sweet, simple song out of those two words if you use them over and over. But then you might want to try varying your strumming pattern. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. And if you stick with it, you'll uncover new ways to express your gratitude. Beautiful. That's very kind of you. How wonderful. Brilliant. Fantastic. Lovely. Amazing. Well done. If you want to go to the next level, you might choose to adopt the practice of sending out thank you notes. They sure are nice to receive, even when they feel obligatory. And how much nicer is their arrival when they're unexpected and sincere? Did you have a favorite teacher or professor or mentor? Is there a boss who opened a door for you? A yoga teacher you dug? A coach who helped you hit a tennis ball with power and accuracy? Reach out. Let them know you appreciate what they did for you. Then... If you want to push deeper, you might look at what frustrates you. Seek out some glimmer of gratitude. Gridlock and traffic might become an opportunity to marvel at the labyrinth of paved roads. It can also be an opportunity to seek out the road less traveled. 
I found an alternate route to replace the most frustrating stretch of my commute. It takes me on tree-lined streets and allows me to roll down the windows and breathe fresh air for a few minutes before I walk in the door at home. I'm so grateful I made that choice. It might add a minute or two to my drive, but the mental health benefits are worth it. Waiting in a long line might become an opportunity to get to know the people you're waiting with. Litter can be an invitation to care for your public park. Pick it up with gratitude for the space set aside for your recreation. It's like playing the ukulele. It just takes a little time every day. Ten minutes to reflect on what you're grateful for is time well spent. Ten minutes composing a thank you note can make someone's day. Ten seconds to thank the bank teller, the grocer, the parking attendant, the janitor are each little building blocks that will grow your ability to express gratitude in deeper and more profound ways if you're willing to commit to the practice. And there will be times when you just don't feel like practicing gratitude at all. And how you deal with these days will be the key to your growth or regression. For there will be days when anger, sadness, and pain can cloud your perception and make you feel like you have little to be thankful for. Gratitude is not about being cheerful all the time, nor is it about ignoring the difficulties and challenges we face. It's about accepting them, facing them, and recognizing that they might, in fact, be an opportunity to transform. Your anger might be an invitation to make a change, to rethink a relationship, or to establish boundaries. Your sadness is part of processing and healing the pain that comes from loss. You can absolutely be grateful for these feelings without pushing them away. It's a challenge. But with practice, it's possible. So, as you gather around the table for a feast of Thanksgiving, whether that's with biological family or chosen, I hope you'll put your gratitude into practice this year. Look for moments of grace. Call them out. Recognize the flashes of connection. Honor them even if it's just being grateful when it's all over and you're on your way home, I hope you'll start to carve out a little time to practice Thanksgiving this season. And that's our lounge. Thanks again for joining us for another Journey Around the Sun. I can't quite believe it, but this is the last episode of our second season. If you like what you hear, if you've learned something along the way, if you've been moved or tickled or inspired, I hope you'll take a moment to share with us at livefromtheloungepodcast.com. Hit the donate button and know that your show of gratitude will go straight to the folks who make this podcast possible. Here's the who did what. Live from the Lounge is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. Double Batch Daddy wrote and performed after all we've come through. Special thanks to Dan Boole for stopping by. You can find out more about his guitar amps at 65amps.com. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. Thanks for spending a little time with me in the lounge, which is simply 
a collection of stories, songs, and conversations intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge.